This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in design, development, and integration of technology into K-12 as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson, an assistant editor at EdSurge. Okay, listeners, I'm going to start off with a question. What do water, the history of slavery in the United States, and the future of work all have in common? Okay, so it's kind of a trick question, but the answer is a lot. And that's the foundation for a new center at the University of Michigan called the Center for Social Solutions. It's a place where researchers are delving into topics around race, the global environment, and how to prepare changing societies for new technology in the workforce. Steering the project is professor, historian, and author Earl Lewis. And recently, I sat down with him at this year's ASU GSV convening in San Diego. It's this big gathering of thousands of education investors and entrepreneurs, and it's hosted by Arizona State University and GSV, a venture capital firm. Lewis is also on the board of 2U, an online program management company that received a bit of buzz that week after it purchased Trilogy Education Services for $750 million. We talked about the deal and also how he's using research to tackle some of the biggest challenges our world faces today. Here he is. I'm here with Dr. Earl Lewis. Thank you so much for joining us. This is great. So I'd love if we could start off talking a little bit about the center that you run. Sure. Um, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how it started and the um, pillars of research that you guys are focusing on. So the center is brand new. A year ago this time, it was a concept. It did not exist. I was then serving, I just finished my term as president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. And as I considered what I wanted to do, I realized I had, during my time as president of Mellon, suggested we focus on grand challenges. And I thought, well, you know, it's one thing for me to suggest it. Why don't I actually go out and do it? And so I thought, we should, someone should create a center for social solutions identify a handful of challenges and try to work on them over the course of the next decade. So I took my own advice uh, and followed through with that and returned to the University of Michigan where I've been on the faculty from 89 to 2004, have been away for 14 years, Uh uh, went back to my colleagues said, I have an idea, Uh, would you like to house it? Uh, Uh I'll bring some money, see if you can match the money and we'll see if we can get this going. And so uh, the center, the Center for Social Solutions, originated with the idea there were four pillars uh, of work that we could pursue over the next decade. Uh One having to do with diversity and democracy, trying to figure out how do we redefine diversity, how do we leverage that diversity, and how do we value that diversity for the betterment of all. And this bears in mind that demographers say that by 2044, the U.S. will have a non-white majority for the first time fully in its Uh history. How do we make sure that we then position all of those individuals to be contributing members to society? So that was a question that we're puzzling and we're working there. Second question, I'm a historian. um, And so 2019 marks the 400th anniversary of the importation of the first 20 or so African peoples into colonial Jamestown Mm -hmm. that began the system of chattel slavery. It Mm -hmm. was bonded labor to begin with, but it started chattel slavery. Uh, And I thought 400 years later, uh, for a system that dominated American history for 250 years, 60% of our history, Mm -hmm. it's time for us to confront it and talk about our slavery past, which is one of the two original sins, I would say, on this nation. Uh, So we're working there, and I can go into greater depth. And then third is water. 
Now, returning to, to Michigan, I always have to tell people, it's not Flint. Yeah. Uh, we have one issue we're concerned with. It's one that has global implications. Mm. We're trying to figure out, can we come up with a regional design that can be scaled nationally and exported globally for moving water from mm -hmm. flood-prone areas to drought-stricken areas? Um, the engineers keep telling me it's not an engineering problem. We have the technology to move this water. But in most floods, think of Nebraska a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, we still use sandbags, 18th century technology in the yeah. 21st century world. Why? And so we want to actually try to answer that question and come up with solutions. And then finally, mm -hmm. uh, is the dignity of labor in an automated world. Mm -hmm. uh, as you well know, McKinsey predicts that somewhere between 400 million and 800 million people will lose their jobs by 2030 as a result of automation. In the United States, it's estimated 54 million, one-third of the contemporary American workforce. That requires us to think in a new way about how we deal with the future of work. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about uh, the introduction of a universal basic income. I think that's necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. I definitely want to dig into yeah. some of these research topics yeah. in particular. But just with thinking about the center itself... Um, how did the, do these research topics overlap um, and how do you kind of bring it all together into one roof? <laughs> yeah, so they do overlap and we've been trying to explain to people that these are not four disconnected activities. Uh -huh. And so if you go back to the question about uh, diversity and democracy, if you think of the last 15, 20 years, too often we blame someone else uh, for the fact that we may be unemployed uh -huh. or underemployed. Um, immigrants coming in, jobs going overseas, something about external factors. Yeah. Uh, and what we wanted to say, no, uh, we have some control over this, that indeed our growing diversity can be and should be an asset, but it also means that we have to deal with the implications of automation. Mm -hmm. And so the first predictions were, of course, that automation would hit the automobile industry. I'm sorry, not the, 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 uh, the car industry and, mm -hmm. and, and, and all those folks who live in transportation world, mm -hmm. uh, that someone upwards of 6 million people could be affected. A disproportionate number of them are not only high school graduates, um, but African-Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about long-distance truck drivers. Um, but uh, in New York City, a disproportionate number are new immigrants yeah. uh, who get their medallions and try to make their way into the American promise. Uh, we think of the first part about growing diversity and a latter part about the dignity of labor in an automated world mm -hmm. as being linked. And then you layer in that, then the old ways in which our history of race and racism are tied to the story of slavery, we can't always get to a solution because we get caught in the past. Yeah. Uh, and then the water piece is just, um, it's universal. Yeah. Uh, safe drinking water is key to uh, a really a secure world. And so the way we see this is all linked by questions about security uh, in a future America. Yeah. Um, so you're, of course, a historian by training. Yeah. And so... You know, thinking about the future of work and, and these things that you're discussing now, what does history tell us about the future of work? And yeah. how long have we been having this conversation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the conversation is old. Maybe mm -hmm. think about agricultural labor, right? Really human intensive. Yeah. People out in the fields plowing early in the morning, oftentimes all the way to sundown, trying to figure out how to get a better yield. Yeah. And then in the 20th century, we add to that mechanization uh, and chemicals. And mm -hmm. so we improve the yield, but we also move from agricultural labor uh, to industrial labor. Mm -hmm. And it required then new people to learn new skills. And um, the craftsman, a woman, uh, but particularly the craftsman, was replaced now by the person who worked 
as a cog and machinery of industrial labor. Uh, and that was the transformation. And then people had to fight workers' fought for their rights and yeah. to make sure they weren't killed in the coal mines or working on the, in the automobile plants. I think that history is important because it says two things. One, work is important. Mm-hmm. Being able to answer the question, what do you do? Uh, is as universal in the West and in much of the world as anything. Anthropologists note, usually within first five minutes, uh, the conversation turns to what do you do? Hmm. We can learn from history some piece of what it means to be able to answer that question because it provides not only individual security, but also a sense of family and community security because you can answer how you belong uh, to someone else in the broader world. The second part that history can tell here is, is that macroeconomic changes can be missed if we don't begin to uh, put humans in the center of the story. And so the advent of uh, machines and machine technology itself is is old. I mean, there's this famous piece from African-American history of the character John Henry. Mm-hmm. And John Henry then is trying to beat a machine. Uh, and in the story, as it goes, John Henry in the end is digging through a mountain and he actually beats the machine, uh-huh. but it kills him. Uh, yeah. And so there's this sort of parable there mm-hmm. about that we can work against change, but maybe to our own detriment. Even if we win in the short term, we may not win in the long term. Yeah. So how do we figure out how to make sure we win this time uh, as we deal with automation without it killing us? Mm-hmm. I want to go back to your um, first point of those yeah. two. You're talking about how um, why work matters to us. Um, and I understand a, a big part of the way that the center looks at the future of work is, is through lens of dignity. Yes. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about sort of like the current, you know, employment landscape and, and thinking about ways of, um, injecting more dignity as we're talking about, um, issues of employment and the future of work. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, right? Because you think, how do we begin? Because dignity can be Mm self-defined and other defined. And so what we've begun to work on is trying to figure out how to work with uh, researchers around in the United States and elsewhere to uh, understand how people self-define aspects of dignity. Yeah. Uh, and so to give a concrete example, um, one of my colleagues at the University of Michigan, uh, Al Young, who is a sociologist, has just uh, finished a book manuscript on Ypsilanti, hmm. which is uh, right next door to Ann Arbor. He spent 10 years uh, interviewing and talking to people. And... And talking to them, and they were in their 20s and 30s when he started, and now in their 30s and 40s. Okay. A lot of these folks were saying they wanted a job like their grandparents had. Hmm. A job that provided them with some modicum of security. And it was a working middle class job so that they had wages where they can buy homes, yeah. uh, where uh, they could go on vacations, uh, they could send their kids to school, uh, they could have health insurance, they could have some sense uh, that they belong both in, in, in a sort of deep internal way, yeah. but also belong to a community. But these young people, when he started interviewing them, realized that that world had passed them by. And, but they couldn't see the future world that we're entering now. And in fact, when they talked to them, they wanted to return to the past. It's almost hmm. like that uh, movies from the 70s, yeah. Back to the Future. Yeah. They yeah. wanted to go back to the future in a way. And I thought, okay, because... They didn't believe that this new world, uh, modest wages, uh, inadequate health insurance, uh, seasonal but not always guaranteed security, was going to provide them with 
the elements of dignity as hmm. they describe it. And so the Al's research and other research that we're leaning on and will be yeah. encouraging is trying to ask people, so how do you define dignity? Mm -hmm. and how do we begin to help you then to really secure the kind of dignity that you want? Uh, and so we, I can tell you one of our first projects is actually to begin to try to map mm -hmm. all of the future work projects that have been identified in the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so, and we're going to geotag them uh, and then trying to figure out how many are in proximity to one another uh, so that we can begin to put researchers in contact. Uh, so, so we can get a little better lift, but yeah. it's interesting and complicated. Well, I know just a moment ago we were talking about how this conversation of the future of work is not necessarily a new one. Yeah. Um, but what's what's different today? Um, is it just automation or, or what is kind of making this conversation come up again? Yeah, so going back to the story about agricultural labor. Yeah. When we talked about a generation at the end of the 19th century, a generation was 25 years get to the middle of the 20th century, and we've gone from agricultural labor to industrial labor, mm -hmm. we're talking about a generation is 20 to 25 years. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about a generation, it's 18 months. That's the pace of technological change. Mm -hmm. And you have this interesting way where an analog world sits on top of a digital world mm -hmm. or intersects with it and trying to uh, understand. So even if you're going back to school, the typical student who's gone to school, if she, he or she is in a baccalaureate program, will go through two and a half digital generations hmm. by the time they graduate in four years. Uh, and that pace of change yeah. is real and tangible. Yeah. And if you think of someone who is underskilled, uh, who needs to be either reskilled uh, or upskilled, I mean, then it's not only that pace of change, but it's actually getting them to understand that uh, this world is for them hmm. uh, and they can be re-educated, uh, let alone reskilled, uh, to encounter a uh, 21st century uh, way of entering the economy. Hmm. So that's one part. Yeah. And the second part, and I think this is equally important, is mental labor as much as it is anything. Mm -hmm. uh, both agriculture and industrial labor was physical labor. Mm -hmm. uh, it had mental components to it, but it was physical labor. Yeah. This is all mental labor you know, for the most part. Mm -hmm. you know, unless somehow along the way we decide we're going to actually invest in infrastructure hmm. uh, and, and build the roads and the bridges and the, and the rail lines that need to be built in this country. <laughs> Uh, we're talking yeah. about a whole next generation thinking about what it means uh, to imagine a different kind of labor that's yeah. radically different than in the past. Hey, listeners, Sydney here. We're going to take a quick pause from the conversation for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Are you interested in creating an innovative, technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive? Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's Program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online, so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home, and it's now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, this program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well-prepared to practice their unique, multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government and military, or to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That address once more is emporia.edu grad. I want to switch gears just a little bit. So we didn't mention this in the beginning, but you are also on the board of 2U. Correct. Um, and there's 
big news this week about 2U acquiring Trilogy Education for $750 million. Um, so you've probably had a busy week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I uh, kind of want to hear your thoughts on the deal. And, and I think it sounds like you see this folding into some of the research that you're working on as well. Yeah, I actually think what we will find over the, I mean, as a board member, excited about this opportunity and for a, a kind of integration that I think Chapasa uh, both noted in the press release and no doubt said earlier this morning uh, here uh, at, at the conference. Yeah. But uh, I believe that we have to figure out now how to begin to educate people truly over a lifetime hmm. uh, and that uh, they will enter into it in different ways. Some will actually take a course or a gain, a, and others will gain a certificate. Others will go on to earn a degree. Some of that may or may not be stackable in the language of today's uh, sort of educational world. Uh, but we need to figure out new systems that allow for that kind of integration across a whole suite uh, of platforms. And I think yeah. the partnership between 2U and, and Trilogy is an attempt to get at that, how to take the whole arc of a learning uh, over a course of a life and figure out ways to make it accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. Uh, and we were just talking about dignity in labor yeah. and the future of work. So as we're talking about the future of learning and, and uh, upskilling, yeah. how, how can dignity remain kind of at the center of these systems? Well, I mean, it, it has to be there, right? Because uh, what we've learned from the first generation of massive coding and algorithms is that human bias can be introduced to any system mm -hmm. uh, and we get deleterious effects, ones that we had not hoped, um, where uh, visual uh, activators uh, can't discern certain skin tones and all because we didn't program that into mm -hmm. uh, it all. The same thing can happen in the ways in which we assess what's, what's good learning versus what's bad learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have to be mindful on the front end that these are human design systems yeah. uh, and they come with certain flaws. That said, I think what we need to do is three things. Uh, one, we need to mobilize as much data as possible uh, to actually understand how people learn. Hmm. We need to understand that they, all, they don't all learn in the same way. Right. And at the same time, I was having a conversation earlier today with some folks about neurosciences and saying, we've known for a long time that human brains develop differently. And there's a gender component to that in a certain hmm. where certain boys have certain parts of their brains on average that develop a little slower than, than girls on average. Uh, and that accounts for some of the discrepancy you see uh, in performance uh, at the secondary level in the United States. Hmm. There's some catching up, the neuroscientists will say, as the male brain develops more late adolescent, early adulthood uh, and all. Hmm. But so how do you begin to use these learning tools then yeah. to map onto uh, human development. And so this is a case where it's not just enough to have a coder there. You actually need a child development expert or hmm. two. You need a neuroscientist there. You need new kinds of teams actually working in new ways, trying to figure out how do we make sure we don't lose any human potential. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then there is this idea of how we then uh, deal with learning at different stages, yeah. uh, where it's not just summative learning, um, but we have a certain part of developmental learning uh, that's uh, piece two. And I actually think that's, for me, the exciting part of the new partnership between Trilogy uh, and 2U. 2U started with the Upria, and there were graduates, folks already had a degree. Mm -hmm. They were earning a graduate degree, working with brand name institutions all over uh, the country and, and the world. Yeah. They then partnered with Get Smarter to begin to do certificates again with leading institutions all over the world. Yeah. Uh, 
now with Trilogy began to sort of stitch this all together and um, creating new opportunities for a much wider range of individuals. Um, well, I think we are running close to time, but um, I wanted to ask, I saw, I think it was a tweet recently, but <laughs> it said, anytime there's a futurist in the room, there should be a historian yeah. as well. So if you were to craft a curriculum for all the futurists and entrepreneurs <laughs> walking around this expo hall right now, um, what would be a few of the items at the top of that, that oh, that's list? A, that's a great question. I've never <laughs> been asked that question. I've been asked a lot. So um, yeah, I think part of it, I would start with a whole section uh, on, uh, on human development. Mm. Uh, reminding us that we have a common human ancestry. Mm. And so I would take them back to ancient Africa and do a whole piece that actually has us travel around the globe mm. to see how humans move from one place to another over time. Uh, and, and in part, is to teach us also that we created myths about ourselves. Mm. Uh, and so how do we get back to that piece that if we, we share human origin, we also share human destiny. Um, we created these myths about difference uh, that may or may not be so important in the end. And so that would be the first part. The second part, I would say, to the historian, then I would delve into why would those myths and some and mm -hmm. what they look like. And the third piece is to say that every generation had its futurist. Uh, and how do we begin to uh, double down on the things that should be doubled down on uh, and not pay so much attention to the other things uh, and also not be so distracted Mm -hmm. uh, by the things that aren't about uh, the common good. That yeah. um, history teaches us those who invest in the common good improve yeah. society for all. Yeah. Those who are only about their own self-interest uh, only gain uh, minimal results because they're only about their own self-interest. Mm. Uh, Is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you wanted to share or make sure our, our listeners out there know about? Well, I think the, uh, the last thing is just that these are exciting times mm -hmm. and they're scary times. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I was in a cab in Fargo, North Dakota a couple of years ago and I was talking to this cabbie who had grown up in eastern North Dakota, western Minnesota much of his life mm -hmm. and we were talking about driverless cars and he looked at me and he says, oh, uh, those things won't work. And I said, yeah, they will. And it was winter. It was January. So it was ice and snow on the ground. Yeah. He goes, but they don't, they, they couldn't have the reaction time that I have and I go, Oh, yeah, they could. I said, I assure you that their reaction time is even faster than mm -hmm. yours. Now, they may not have the experience, but we can build that uh, as well. And so the question for him then says, well, and he turned to me and looked in the back and goes, that scares me to death. Yeah. Uh, and I realized how many people are afraid of the future. Yeah. Because we in higher education and elsewhere haven't given them a good reason to believe they will be part of the future. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us at this conference and other places like it, we have to actually move beyond the community of folks who are already privileged enough to be in a higher ed or the ed tech space uh, to say to the vast majority of Americans and the world, yeah. uh, you're part of this future. One way or another, we're going to figure out to make sure that there's not a greater divide between the have and the have nots. We need to figure out how to create a world that only has the haves. Thank you so much Thank you. for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. This is hard. Uh, all right, this is Jeff Young here, and I am only butting in because I have some 
some some hard news, some some bittersweet news, which is that Sidney Johnson, who you've heard just now in this episode and has done some of the uh, the most popular and and really best podcasts we've done, is is leaving Ed Surge um, and and headed to a new adventure. So, um, Sydney, what are you what are you up to next? Yeah, it's really bittersweet, um, but I'm going to be moving over to Ed Source, um, which is a nonprofit journalism that covers education issues in California. Um, so I'll be also jumping beats a little bit. I'll be covering K-12 math and science. Um, but this isn't the end of my audio days. Uh, I'll be uh, also helping out a little bit with the podcast there, too. Ah, well, well, okay. Well, we'll, we'll hope to hear you again in the future or, or hear what you're up to. Um, and honestly, just wanted to thank you for all the, all the amazing work here and for really telling these, these stories in, in really deep ways and, and getting at all these interesting things. I guess you may not spend as much time with, with, um, brainwave reading, um, <laughs> devices or, or interviewing, uh, robot robots that deliver food on campus or anything but yeah yeah unfortunately i might not be getting burritos for as many assignments this time but <laughs> um <laughs> regardless you know i just i i do want to say that i've just loved being able to talk to so many smart people on this show and explore important issues that i have found just fascinating you know many of the people that we've had on this podcast are edu- educators or digital learning experts um, and many of them are readers. So it's, it's just been a huge privilege getting to know so many of them and, and tell their stories. I've definitely learned a lot along the way. And Jeff, it's, it's been a blast working with you on all this too. I'm really going to miss it, but I'm excited to see where it goes next. Yeah, we'll, we'll miss you too. And yeah, you've really pushed and I think made the podcast a lot better. And I, pe- I encourage people to go back and listen to, to the episodes you've done. And of course, we'll still be here um, every week. <laughs> and, um, but we'll be watching, watching what you do. Sydney, thanks again. Thanks. Keep listening. <laughs> <laughs>